would love to do, if it's okay with you guys, is to just do a summary of the first half of the, the article. Um, and then if there's any thoughts on that, we'll talk about it and then we'll go into the second part. Um, so in, in summary, uh, you know, Marcel is kind of like a doctor and he is both diagnosing a problem, uh, a sickness in society, and then he's offering a cure for society. Um, and interestingly, the second part of the article, which we're going to look at this week, is, uh, is more about the cure. And the first half that we looked at last week is, is largely about the diagnosis. And in the first half, uh, he's obviously talking about this notion of the ontological mystery, and which is the whole title of the article. And the ontological mystery, as we all know now, is the mystery of being, that what is it to be? Not for kind of like, I am a writer, or I am this, or I am that, the very concrete types of beings that we are, but what does it mean to be in a broader kind of sense? And Marcel is diagnosing the sickness of contemporary society as the reduction of being to uh, various beings, the kind of reduction of humans and society, everything down into disparate parts that can be analyzed. And this kind of takes away from a depth dimension, uh, what Tillich would call an experience of the ground of being. And he breaks it down. He says, we're broken down to our vital functions, our biological functions. We're broken down to our social functions. And potentially, he says, the third could be our psychological functions. Although he says often the psychological is thrown into one of the buckets of the vital or the social. So his issue is we have kind of robbed reality of its weight. Um, we have atomized everything, and this larger question of being disappears. And this used to be called, I think they used to call this the fallacy, the nothing buttery fallacy, where someone, for example, if you reduce language to a dictionary, and you, you break down language to just words, what you lose is meaning, what you lose is language itself. Or if you, if you analyze a television screen, and you're able to say everything about what's on the screen, what every pixel, what color it is, where it is on the screen, and you break it down completely, what you're left with is an exhaustive analysis of what is on the screen, but you lose the meaning that is being projected on the screen. And the meaning is not an object separate from the pixels, but it's also not reducible to the pixels. So it's a kind of a very difficult thing to grasp is you break down the television screen, you have everything, you know everything about it from a mechanical, electrical, technological perspective, and yet you miss the, the way, the, the, what's, what's on the screen, the meaning that's on the screen. So that's, that's his concern. Now, he's got two issues with it. Uh, he has the issue that this is the council of despair that this kind of way of engaging with the world reduces the world to a type of, you know, um, yeah, ultimately despair and suicide, even in the successes, when everything becomes technological, when we look at everything through the lens of functionality, uh, we lose a sense of depth. It's a sickness. It's a dis-ease. He, he talks about the broken world elsewhere. It's a common theme of his. Um, uh, and, but on the other side, he thinks it's philosophically weak as well. He's not just saying this is sick and we need to go back to some sort of like mystical understanding of things. No, he wants to also say not only is it 
uh, a type of metaphysical sickness that we have in society. It's also a philosophical error. And um, he wants to kind of like grind, grind this in something deeper. Uh, and at the very beginning of the article, he says he's going to piss off everybody. You know, he's going to piss off those people who are philosophers who don't like talk of the mystical. And he's going to piss off kind of um, uh, maybe kind of, I can't remember exactly what he said, but maybe it's the people who are more uh, mystical who wants to grind this in a type of philosophy. But anyway, he's going to kind of fall between the, the cracks. Um, the reason why he thinks that it's a philosophically weak position to reduce everything to its disparate parts and to view the world through a technological worldview um, is because he thinks that mystery is more primal than problem. So the key distinction in all of this is mystery and problem. A problem is when we, we distance ourselves from an issue, we look at it dispassionately and objectively which we do in daily life and it's in mathematics or whatever. Anybody can add two plus two. Right? It's, we're divorced from it. It's separate from us. And mystery, which is a form of being in the world in which we are caught up, in which we are uh, passionate in the sense of the passion of the Christ, the passion as in we are emotionally, existentially invested in reality. So there's two, there's two ways, I guess, that we are in the mystical experience of life before a problematic experience of life. One is, of course, when we're kids, when we're children, when we're infants, we are much more within our, uh, the, the, in, the, in passion, whether it's happiness or sadness. But also in our daily lives, Heidegger makes a big uh, deal of this, and Marcel's very influenced by Heidegger, um, is the notion that in most of our lives, we're immersed. So for example, if I remember a while back, I went for a drive and I ended up, I was just caught up in thinking and I found myself in the middle of nowhere. I'd been driving for an hour and I didn't really know where I was or how I got there. Um, that experience is a kind of mystical experience. I'm immersed in the world and not rationally thinking about it. I'm obviously engaged in driving. I'm looking around me, but um, it's very, I'm not reflecting on it. But then when I realized that I was in the middle of nowhere, then I started to reflect. I started to take a more kind of distant view of what had just happened. And so for Heidegger and Marcel, this way, this way of being in the world is actually primary. It's, it's how we start. Uh, there's a great documentary called Being in the World by a guy called Tao Rossellini, who I've actually met a few times in LA. He's a really interesting guy. Um, and it, it follows um, various people, like architects, uh, musicians, other people who get so involved in their work that they don't see a distinction between them and the wood that they're working on or the instrument that they're playing or the sport that they're playing. You know, those people who, when they get out on the field, they are kind of like immersed in it and they feel themselves part of the the football that they're kicking, basically. So that's being in the world. And it's the hardest thing for us to think about because as soon as we start thinking about it, we're out of it. And so that's why Marcel's saying it's kind of it's invisible to us. It's our primary way of being in the world, yet it's weirdly invisible to us because as soon as we think about it, we're outside of it. And uh, this reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis did in one of his better kind of reflections and he, um, he talks about the difference between enjoyment and contemplation, where he says to enjoy is to be 
to feel, to be in the world, to be in love. But it's also enjoyment in the old fashioned sense. So it can be painful to suffer. It's again like the word passion. To enjoy simply means to be caught up in uh, the world and caught up in experience. And then contemplation is where you think about it, you reflect on it, you distance yourself from it. And Lewis, like, uh, like Marcel, makes a, a distinction, a polarity. He says, when you're contemplating, you're not enjoying. And when you're enjoying, you're not contemplating. And then Lewis says, well, is there a synthesis? Is there a way to bring enjoyment and contemplation together? And, and for Lewis, the answer is mythology. He says, myth is what allows us to enjoy and contemplate. We taste what it's about, but it also kind of is something that we can reflect on. So C.S. Lewis sees the tie, the tie that ties those two things together as, as a myth. And I think this brings me to what Kate was talking about last week, and I just was lost because I hadn't done the close reading, but of what recollection is, because I think that's what, what Marion uses the term recollection to kind of talk about how do we do justice to this experience of mystery? How do we grab hold of it without reducing it to a problem, without making it a problematic, uh, what he calls the meta-problematical. So my reading of, the, of recollection now that I did the work is that uh, Marion is saying that when we start to reflect on our immersion in the world, that very reflection is a proof that we're immer- like that kind of comes after it's evidence of mystery it's evidence that we are participating in the world in this deep sense um and as we start thinking about it we're recalling it we're recollecting it we're bringing it into mind we're kind of unifying that feeling and reflecting on it and recollection i think is different from reducing it to a problem because recollection is attempting to do justice to the feeling attempting to grab a hold of it attempting to help us remain faithful to it uh, without reducing it to something that's that's at a distance from us um, and then one final thing that was in the we didn't talk about last week but was when he mentioned Descartes and he talked about the cogito and he talked about the I am whenever I say I am and I think therefore I am what he's saying when i say i am there's a sense in which those two are absolutely intertwined we can't cut them apart the i is me i'm talking about me and am is being and so there's an individual dimension and a universal dimension i am part of being i am uh, just as other things are i am so so again marcel is saying like philosophically speaking uh, you do participate. There is a way in which you're participating in reality in a very immersed way, immersive way that is more basic and more primal than the than problem. Uh, Heidegger, by the way, he uses this example of a of a of a hammer, and he says a hammer is ready to hand or present at hand. So a hammer is ready to hand. Whenever a carpenter is using a hammer, they're not thinking about the hammer. They're just using it. It's an extension of them. It's ready to hand. But then if the hammer breaks, it becomes present to hand. It becomes something that they look at, that they fix, that they become aware of. And while these are both incredibly important, the, the kind of ready to hand is the more primordial way of being. Before we start, so almost before science gets going, 
there's already a participation in being itself and Marcel's worried that we lose that. So that's my uh, summary of last week. Does anybody want to add to that or make any comments or questions?